82, number 83 in the song. Psalm number 83 in the song. How blessed is he whose trespass hath freely been forgiven, whose sin is wholly covered before the sight of heaven. We shall sing the three verses. How blessed is he whose trespass hath freely been forgiven. Glorify 
thanked for thee, and unspeakably precious and profitable to those who are thus exercised. We would confess our unworthiness of the list of thy goodness, our continued sinfulness in thy sight. We would confess that we are unworthy and unfit to draw near to thee, yet Thy command to us is to draw near on that new and living way that Thou hast consecrated through the veil. Yet Thou commandest us to come boldly to a throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Thy word is most gracious. Thou dost reveal thyself as being full of compassion, not delighting in destroying thy creature, but rather in calling them to thyself, that they may obtain the mercy that they need. May we be unable to see thy character thus, that we may have that blessed encouragement from thyself, that would enable and constrain us to cast our burden upon thee, believing that thou carest for us. Do thou thyself work mightily in us, giving us in ourselves the evidence of thy gracious power, of thy faithfulness, of thy love, that would indeed lift up our heart and our mind to thyself. May we be unable to contemplate thy glory as revealed in Christ Jesus. May this indeed be the exercise of our soul as we profess to worship Thee. Of ourselves we are nothing and can do nothing, but Thou canst do all things. There is nothing too hard for thee, and hence there is hope for us. Bless us, each one. We all need thee, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or evil. And may we, through thy grace, be so taught and enlightened as that we shall take to ourselves by faith the provision of thy grace so that when we must meet thee, we may do so with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Bless thy word to us to this end, 
Blessed whatever it is read or proclaimed this day. Lord, acknowledge it as thine. May it have free course and be glorified. We pray thee to be gracious to those who are denied our privileges, to the cast down, the perplexed, the discouraged. Lord, speak comfortably to their heart. May they feel that underneath them are the everlasting arms. May there be a day of thy power, a day of the right hand of him that is most high among us and to the ends of the earth. Enable us now to wait upon thee looking to thee and to thee only, and take away all our sins for the Redeemer's sake. Amen. We may now consider together for a little as we shall be enabled words you will find in the epistle to the Hebrews. <clears throat> the epistle to the Hebrews, the third chapter. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> At verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of Sin. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The call of this text, as of many other passages in Scripture, is this. Watch. Be vigilant. Be sober. For your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Take heed, brethren. But there is something further, something nearer than the roaring lion. There is an evil heart of unbelief whose very nature is to depart from the living God. Now, when uh, <clears throat> the apostle says, take heed, lest this be in you, He does not, of course, imply that there are some in whom there is not 
and even heart of unbelief. He does not mean that there is such a thing in this life as being wholly and entirely rid of such an heart. But he does mean that they were to take heed lest this evil heart should have dominion over them. It was something against which they were to struggle to put forth every effort of which they were capable and to call mightily unto God lest this evil heart of unbelief should have dominion over them. Take heed. Now the question naturally arises. Where did this heart come from? certainly was not part of man's original constitution. For God made man upright. But he didn't continue like that. And why? Well, because of unbelief because he departed from the living God. And this departure was of such an issue that man could never retrace his steps. Neither could he rid himself of the consequences of this departure. Hence, now, in a state of sin and misery, this is part of that sin and misery, that he has an evil heart, a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, we might ask, in what this, does this wickedness consist? That's a wide field, you may say. Yes, very wide indeed. But what is the very essence of this evil heart, of the evil of this heart? Well, he tells us, it departs from the living God. It departs, it continues in that original sin which man committed in the garden. He departed from the living God and the evil of his heart makes itself known by continuing to depart. It carries on in the same course. Hence the need of man to be turned or to be converted, which means to be turned. He needs to be turned. His departure from God is of such a nature that he continues to depart. Man goes astray from the womb, speaking lies, 
He goes astray and to continues to go astray. Now, what are the consequences of departing from God? Well, Jeremiah, in the charge he brings against his own generation, says that Israel had committed two great sins, two great evils. <laughs> that they had forsaken God, the fountain of living water. That's number one. But having forsaken God, the fountain of living water, they weren't content to do nothing. No, they had to set to work substituting something for the fountain which they had forsaken. They dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that could hold no water. My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me. They have departed from me. The fountain of living waters. Now to depart from the fountain of living waters is to wander into the region of death. Death. To depart from God is to fall into Death. This is the evil of the heart, an evil heart. It departs from the living God. Now, there are two things that can be said of this. It is an evil. It is a sin. It is attended with gift. But not only is it an evil thing, but it is also a bitter thing. It is evil, it is wrong, but it brings bitterness in its trade. It should not be. Man should not depart from God. There is nothing that can possibly justify the slightest deviation from God. Man is duty-bound as, as a creature to cleave unto God as the source of his being and of his life. And to depart from him, or to turn aside from him, is the essence of the evil of which man is capable. There is nothing worse than this. There can be nothing worse. It is uh, wraps up in itself every evil imaginable. To depart from the living God. Take heed. Lest this evil heart that departs from God be in you. Now while, of course, <clears throat> the words are primarily spoken to those who made a public profession of religion. They are also applicable to man in any condition. And furthermore, we all make a profession of religion, one way or another. Hence the words speak to us directly. 
hate it lest there be in you, in you, this heart that departs from God. <clears throat> now the heart that never turned to God is in a state of total alienation or absolute departure from God. Nevertheless, the injunction goes out, the admonition, the warning, the exhortation speaks to those in such a condition. There is nothing more dangerous than, to, than for us to try to evade the word of God by taking shelter in a false refuge. And that is what happens very often, especially with those who hear the gospel. They try to evade the force. They try to blunt the point of the shafts or the arrows of God as they are aimed at them. And there are innumerable uh, refuges of lies. One of them, perhaps a very common one, is, well, that doesn't, that doesn't speak to me. I don't profess to be anything. Well, there is one thing you must profess to be. You must profess to be a creature, a human being, a creature endowed with reason and with conscience. And to you as such a creature, God speaks. <laughs> Apart from anything else to qualify your condition or state, he speaks to you and to me as creatures. And this is one of the things he says to us. Take heed, lest you be under the dominion of the evil heart that departs from God. Why take heed? Because it is a most dangerous condition to be in. From any point of view, it is a most undesirable condition to depart from the living God. All bitterness in life and in death. All bitterness that comes to man by way of judgment is to be referred directly to his departure from God. And to continue in that condition is to continue in death. Now, these are facts that cannot be gainsaid. They are writ large over every page of the Word of God. Take heed. But now we may ask, how does this heart of unbelief how does it depart from the living God? This evil heart 
How does it depart? Well, it departs in unbelief. Unbelief and departing from God are inseparable. There can be no departing from God but through unbelief. As there can be no returning to God but by faith, so there can be no departing from him but by unbelief. Now what is unbelief? What is it? And what does it consist? Can we an analyze it? Or should we even try to analyze it in such a way as to see something of its nature and of its consequences? Well, we may up to a point at least. The essence of unbelief is this. Not to receive what God says. You see, that's very simple. Oh, well, it may be. But that is the very essence of unbelief. To turn aside from the word of God. To treat it as if it were not true. That's unbelief. In the first place, unbelief is not to be um, analyzed in relation to my own condition for eternity. That is, some people would uh, say that unbelief consists in believing that you are not saved. And uh, there is a general opinion abroad that if you say loud enough and long enough that you are saved, then that you have faith. That prevails in many circles. Well, as a matter of fact, unbelief and faith are not to be defined in those terms at all. These are secondary, but primarily they are to be defined and described in man's reaction to God's word. Do you believe the word of God? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that every sin deserves God's wrath, both in this life and in that which is to come? Do you believe that? I say yes, I believe that. Now there's another step. What effect has that belief upon you? You believe that sin deserves eternal damnation. You say you believe that. What effect has that on you? What does it produce in your mind? Well, for the moment, we'll assume that it produces nothing worthy of the name. You go on day by day as if that were not true. Now, how can we prove that? Well, that doesn't need any proof. That's self-evident. For remember, if you really believed that your sin deserves damnation, that would 
immediately produce defects and results that you could not keep back. Why can a sinner in a state of wrath live by day, live day by day in comparative ease? Why does he do it? How can he do it? There's only one answer, my friend. He doesn't believe that he's in a state of wrath at all, whatever he sees. He doesn't believe it. Unbelief is raining. The heart departs from God through unbelief. It doesn't receive God's testimony regarding sin. He turns away from it. He doesn't believe it. And when a man does believe it, when a man is saved to that extent from the power of unbelief, then immediately and automatically results follow. His ease is gone. No man or woman can be at ease facing a lost eternity and knowing it. Believing it. It simply cannot be. We have to trace our ease oftentimes not to our faith, but to our unbelief. And that is the reigning spirit against which Paul uh, war against which Paul against which he warns the believers, not only unbelievers, in which this spirit reigns supreme, but in believers also. They are in danger of coming under the power of the spirit, the spirit of unbelief. And even a believer may have much ease, which he shouldn't have at all, which is the result of his unbelief, not the result of his faith. Now, as that is true regarding man's condition, in relation to God as a lawgiver and as a judge, it is equally true of man's condition in relation to God as he makes himself known as the savior of the lost. Do you believe? We read in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ. Do we? Do we believe in him? Are we sure we believe in him? Should, should we not examine our belief in that respect also? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Who suffered under Pontius Pilate? Who was crucified? dead and buried, who rose again from the dead on the third day and ascended up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Do you believe that? And if so, again we ask, what effect has that belief on your heart, on your mind, and on your conscience. Belief of the truth cannot be fruitless. It cannot be barren. It must bring forth fruit. In the very nature of things. What effect has it on our heart? All right, we'll say, we believe in Jesus Christ. In what way? 
And since when? How has this come about? And what is more important, what fruit does, does this bear? Well, those who believe in Jesus Christ, that is, those who are saved from unbelief in this respect, believe in him as the Son of God, the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. They believe in him as their sacrifice for sin, as their advocate with the Father. And because of this, they have peace. Not the peace of the dead, not the peace of unbelief, but the peace of faith. How do you distinguish between the two? The peace of death that follows unbelief or the peace of faith that follows that glorious and blessed manifestation of the Spirit in the soul, the manifestation of Christ as the propitiation for certain. The peace that follows that how is it distinguished from the peace of death, the peace of unbelief? Well, of course, in their nature, they're different. But we might put it like this. The peace of conscience that flows from what accompanies justification, adoption, and sanctification is the peace that is dependent upon Christ. It is absolutely dependent upon him. That is to say, only as I see him can I have peace. Only as I understand something of the glory of his person and work can my conscience be at rest. Then it rests in him. In him. And not in another, not in myself. Not in anyone else. Not even in the work of the Spirit. But in Christ, in what he is, and in what he has accomplished. There are many who go around looking for peace from the work of the Spirit, and not from the work of Christ. <laughs> The work of the Spirit is most honorable, most glorious and pure. But it is not to the work of the Spirit I am to look in order to have peace, but to the work of Christ. Many people argue like this. Now, if I only had this, if I only had this frame of mind, if I only could be sorry for my sin, if I only could repent and so on, then I would have some hope. It is a blessed thing, my friends, to be sorry for our sins. It is a blessed thing to repent. But our repentance is not the basis of our peace. We are not to look for peace in what we call marks of grace. The marks of grace are the, um, the discerning 
of the work of the Spirit. But remember, that is not the ground of peace for any sinner. No. Glorious and blessed as that is. That is, it is not presented in the scheme of salvation, in the economy of grace, as a ground for peace. No, my friends, no. It is Christ Jesus. It is he who is our peace, if we have any. He himself. And if my conscience is to have peace, it must look not to the work of the Spirit in me, but to the work of Christ for me. That is the ground of the peace of any sinner. And furthermore, this is the only peace that God has to offer. I may draw false consolation even from a true work of grace. Yes. The order of things is important, my friends. Don't throw things out of order. Keep them in the order that God has placed in them. We shall do so, of course, only as the Lord himself will teach us. I think that most of those who have experienced peace will agree with us. That for long enough they were looking for it where it was not to be found. They were looking for peace or they were looking for grounds of comfort in themselves. They didn't get peace there because God didn't mean that they should. But when they realized what their peace was, or rather, who their peace was, then, in that connection, and we underline this, in that connection, they stopped looking to themselves. They looked to him, and they were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. They looked to him, anointed with the unction which is from on high, and there they saw their peace, the peace of God that passeth knowledge. They were saved from their unbelief, their unbelief in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Departing from the living God. Now do, do we say, you may ask, you may ask, that the heart that does not rest in God is departing from it. That's precisely what we say. Whether in the sinner or in the saint, the heart that is not at rest in God is departed from him. That may be partial or it may be absolute. Absolute in the dead sinner, partial in the saint. But it is the very nature, it's the same nature in both cases. There are no two sins, there are no two types of unbelief. Sometimes you would think that some people are of the impression that there are two types of sin and two types of unbelief. That the, the sin of the, of, the, of the believer is different from the sin of the unbeliever considered a sin. Of course it is not. 
Sin is sin, and it's nothing else. Unbelief is unbelief, and it's nothing else. Whatever it is, in sinner or in sin, it is of the same nature. It has the same tendency. It works the same way. Hence the injunction. Hence the point of it. Take heed, brethren. He's not doubting their grace at all. He puts that beyond question by the title he gives them. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. An evil heart departs and departs in unbelief. Yes. Now, of course, the uh, opposite of this is faith. The heart that does not depart in unbelief is the heart that is fooled by a new principle. A new principle that expresses and exercises its, itself in the form of faith. Faith is the opposite of unbelief. If we are not to depart from him by unbelief, we are to cleave unto him by faith. Well, of course, that is implied in what the in what is said here. Take it lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departed from the living God. Father, cleave unto him by faith. <clears throat> no. Apply this in a, in, a, in a converse way. Or apply the converse of this. It means, see that there be in you a new heart of faith, not an evil heart of unbelief, but a new heart in which faith dwells and of which faith is the motivating principle. In cleaving, not in depart, but in cleaving to the living God. <coughs> this is the prayer of the psalmist when he says, Let my heart cleave unto thee, that I may fear thy name continually. Strange as it is, Departing from God results in that insensibility of spirit that results in man not fearing God, but in cleaving to him, as the psalmist says, he fears God. And this is the fear which is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of glorifying God by obedience to him, walking in his way. Now he gives us one, uh, one cure for this. They were to take heed lest this type of heart would be in them. They were to exhort one another daily, daily. <clears throat> the scriptures know of no condition at which man may arrive where he doesn't need any teaching anymore. Exhort one another. Exhort 
exhort one another daily. As it is said, you need all the help you can get. All the help you can get from God and all the help you may get from man. You need it all in order to take heed that this evil heart of unbelief will not depart from the living God or that such a principle may not lay in you. Exhort one another daily. You can't let up. There is no time when one can sit back and say, I am safe for the present at least. No. No. You are always within reach of the enemy. And he is ready at all times to take advantage of any opportunity that may be afforded him. One another daily. Why so? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now this deceitfulness of sin is to be guarded against not only as far as what we call outward and gross sin is concerned, but especially against the deceitfulness of sin in a religious form in the heart. The deceitfulness of sin is never to be more dreaded than when it takes a religious form. That is but putting the words of the apostle in another way, where he says, Satan himself may appear as an angel of light. And that is when he is most dangerous. Now how does the deceitfulness of sin take a religious form? In this then, it makes unbelief respectable. That's one of its forms. It, it makes people to glory in their unbelief. Oh, you say, surely nobody does that. Yes, my friends, thousands. They compliment themselves on their unbelief. And consequently, on their departing from God and on their evil heart. Oh, they wouldn't put it like that. Oh, no, no. They, but they would put it like this. So and so makes a profession of religion. Yes, he's a hypocrite. So they say, we don't make any profession. We don't pretend that we are religious at all. And they, they think that they are to be highly commended for that. They glory in their unbelief. That is one of the forms of the deceitfulness of sin. One of its most dangerous forms, too. <laughs> Take it lest this happens to you that you be hardened, hardened in such a way as that neither the terror of the law of God nor the proclamation of his love will move your heart anymore, not even in a natural way. That happens through the deceitfulness of sin. Not only, we say, 
through the commission of gross sins against the law, but through glory in unbelief. <coughs> no wonder, though, the apostle says, take heed. You know, of course, why this letter was written. The aim of the letter in particular was to safeguard those who were in danger of going back from the profession of the gospel to the ritual of the law. They were those who were in danger of being ensnared by the uh, Judaizing teachers, those who say, well, we'll return, we'll go back to the law. Didn't that sound nice? Didn't that sound well? They didn't say we'll go on and live in, and grow sin. No, no. But we'll go back and we'll keep the law of Moses. When all the time, despite the thinking, they were being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are no better than they were. <clears throat> Hence the word comes to us with all its force, with all its authority. Take heed. Take heed. It is time to awake out of sleep. Judgment is drawing near. Eternity is drawing near. And when we come to the judgment, we cannot dare compliment ourselves on our unbelief. No. The reality of the judgment will be too much for that. then nothing will do but this, that we should be found in Christ, not having your own righteousness, which is of the law. We cannot say then, or try to compliment ourselves, that, that we are, at least we are not hypocrites. Some people, oh, we've all heard that, we've heard it often. We don't profess anything, no. Very good. We are honest, yes, very good. But that's not no avail, my friend. You take shelter in that only because of unbelief and through unbelief. If you were saved from that unbelief, the unbelief in God speaking in judgment, unbelief in God speaking in mercy, you couldn't argue like that. No. That is the outgoing of unbelief. Take heed then. A very pertinent question in conclusion is this. How am I going to take heed? How is this to be done? <clears throat> If anyone else knows of any answer to that but one, we freely confess that we don't. We have only one answer to that question. Take heed. How am I going to take heed? <clears throat> By calling consistently. Calling with patience, with importunity, on the God of truth, taking no rest until he saves me from my unbelief, from my error, yea, from all the dangers that surround me. We don't know of any answer to the question but that. That is to say, Whichever approach we take to this, they all lead to the one end, 
with the one destination, and it is this. Man needs God. You need God, my friend. You need God. You need God to save you from yourself. You need God to save you from your false reasoning and from your false conclusions. And he only can do it. He speaks to you and to me as rational, responsible creatures. And the door is open to us as creatures to call upon him. He is the God of truth. He puts the truth in the heart, and he is delighted with it there, so that every precept, every exhortation, every warning, if I understood it, would drive me to God, to God himself, that he might make his power, his grace, his love, effectual to my salvation in the full and the widest meaning of that earth. Take it then. Exhort one another, dear lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let us pray. Oh.